Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. In this week's episode of the Economic Rockstar Podcast, I am joined with Kate Bond, economist at the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C. and founder of LadyEconomist.com. We talk about monopsony for early career teachers in the United States, about the role of gender in influencing economic outcomes in the labour market, the economics of retirement, as well as the International Association for Feminist Economists Conference. Kate also shares with us her main influencers in economics, as well as who she believes what president should be removed from the US dollar bill and replaced by a female. You can check out all the show notes to this episode on economicrockstar.com forward slash Kate Bond, B-A-H-N. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not leave some feedback or comments on the show notes page on economicrockstar.com, where you can also sign up and be a member of the Economic Rockstar community. If you're listening to this episode on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, I would love to have some feedback and for you to leave an honest rating and review, as this will help with the rankings of the show so that more people can find it. If you're listening on the website economicrockstar.com, make sure you check out the back catalogue of all previous episodes and interviews with some amazing professors and authors at economicrockstar.com forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening and I really appreciate your loyal support. If you'd like to support the show and become a patron of the Economic Rockstar podcast, please visit patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and in the search bar, type in Economic Rockstar to find out more. Teachers provide such a great social benefit to society that they're not capturing the gains from. So have some sort of way where we can acknowledge that social benefit and represent that in their salaries, which would be something on the, you know, I think on the range of having six-figure teacher salaries. After you've worked your whole life, you should be able to have a stable retirement and not have to worry about it. Um, but we're just moving away from that sort of system. Another thing that I feel like I can't overstate enough is the importance of having sort of communities of other people. For me, it tends to be other women to sort of bounce ideas off of and, and do brainstorming with to sort of revive you intellectually. Never miss an episode of the Economic Rockstar podcast. Visit economicrockstar.com, submit your name and email, and you will get each episode straight to your inbox. Hi, Frank Conway here, and you're listening to the Economic Rockstar podcast. I am so honored to have Kate Bann join me today. Hi, Kate. Welcome to the show. Hi, Frank. Thanks for having me. Kate Bond is an economist at the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C., Kate is also the co-founder and managing editor of Lady Economist, an amazing blog with rich content on how economics impacts women and girls. Kate's economics writing has been featured in The Guardian, The Nation, The Chronicle of Higher Education and Good Magazine, among others. She is also an active member of the International Association for Feminist Economics. Kate received her PhD in economics from the New School for Social Research, where she also worked as a researcher for the Schwartz Center for Economic Policy Analysis. Kate's scholarly research includes labour economics, gender in the economy, caring labour and retirement. Kate, what made me reach out to you initially was your fantastic website, The Lady Economist. I wanted to find out more. And then that brought me down a rabbit hole and opened up a lot more uh, to it in terms of your fantastic doctoral research on monopsony for early career teachers. I'd like to talk about that, if you don't mind, in a little while. And also your candid blog posts and some of these magazines and online magazines I've mentioned earlier. 
about relationships. But your website, Lady Economist. Yeah. What made you work on this and why a lady economist? Um, so the way Lady Economist was born was in the cubicle of my graduate economics department. I shared a cubicle space with another graduate student, Catherine Moose, who turned to me like her first week of starting being like, I was thinking about starting a blog about, you know, gender and women and girls and economics. And I want to call it Lady Economist. And like from this brief conversation the two of us had, we just sort of like completely ran with it. Um, and it was really sort of inspired by us being, for lack of a better word, millennial female economists who are very much plugged into and attuned to like the current feminist blogosphere, sort of Jezebel feministing, these sorts of blogs that are really popular um, and wanting to create a space in between that world of really popular blogging that's primarily for a female audience and a sort of intellectual young female audience. Um, and then the other work being done that's also sort of popular on like political blogs like Politico or Think Progress and then the really popular writing of people like Paul Krugman. So we wanted to sort of like connect these two worlds of sort of like funny, popular feminist blogs and political and economics blogs. And so it's really about finding that niche in between. And I think that's also why we've been so lucky to get the attention for it that we have is that we found this niche that we feel like wasn't being represented. And do you think there's a failing in terms of the whole economics profession and how they treat the gender equality between male and female? There definitely has been at large. Um, there's still some great work being done out there on gender, but for the most part, uh, what's being taught in graduate programs doesn't really focus on gender at all. It's often an afterthought. Um, so people aren't really talking about gender as being really fundamental to how the economy works. And so with Lady Economist and then with all the other work I do, it's sort of interjecting gender as being such a fundamental structure in our society that you can't be really doing good economics writing or economics research without acknowledging the role of gender. Recently, a report was written, I think it might have been featured in one of the popular magazines, stating that female economists get underappreciated relative to their male counterparts. Yeah, yeah, that was in the New York Times by Justin Wolfers, I think. Justin, yes, that's correct. Yeah. Is there an inherent truth in this? Um, there is. I was actually, I've been having this conversation with people recently, because now that I'm here working in D.C., Center for American Progress, um, you can see it in action. So there's definitely a value to being a woman economist, but part of that is coming from the fact that when people hear that I'm an economist, they kind of give me a surprised look. It's just there aren't that many female economists out there. When you say you're an economist as a woman, sometimes people are like surprised, like they they can't believe that you're an economist as a woman. Um, and that sort of that's, that's like a little sort of micro example of the ways in which women in economics are sort of, you know, seen as less valid or it's surprising to see them there. And the fact that that's still happening is pretty outrageous. I hope my own podcast doesn't give the incorrect impression as well, because it's heavily weighted on males. Yeah, that happens. Obviously, when I when, when I go search for economists, most men, most of the males tend to be up for speaking, you know, yeah. uh, relative to females. And I, I, I don't know what the reason might be. Is it just lack of confidence or is it just not their thing? I don't know. You know um, I, 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 it's hard to say when you talk about things like lack of confidence, because I, I do think sometimes that can happen. I've written sort of in the Chronicle of Higher Ed about uh, imposter syndrome in academia and how it's more prevalent among women. But it's not just that women sort of have this own psychological thing where they're not feeling confident. 
it's that it's that little thing like people being surprised when they find out that I'm an economist. Um, so, you know, everyone who goes into academic work can have imposter syndrome. But when people when you tell people that you're an economist and they look at like look at you like you're surprised, it's sort of it reinforces that or it makes it a little bit more difficult. Um, and then also just it's sort of in terms of not being enough, as many visible female economists. I think this happens in lots of different industries and fields of the sort of the glass ceiling, basically, that women are getting economics PhDs in much higher numbers, but they're not moving up the ladder as high as men are. So like, you know, there's only been one female Nobel Prize economist. But even I bet if you looked at like chief economists working in government and for think tanks and for unions and things like that, you're going to find many fewer women, even though women have been getting, you know, a third of economics PhDs for almost 20 years now. Um, So women just aren't moving up as high, so they're not getting the same visibility. Your website, Lady Economist, has a great caption, Bright Ladies, Dismal Science. Yeah. And is this an outlet for specifically for females to kind of congregate and share ideas or write about work that they are actually studying or analyzing themselves in their own particular research or even the popular culture that they might be able to relate certain themes in economics through movies or even books written by other economists. So it's almost like a center point for people to share their ideas. Is that the main motive for your website? Yeah, definitely. I think that's sort of been maybe one of the unexpected great things about the website that sort of kept it going um, is, you know, not only me and the other woman who'd founded it, who is no longer involved with, in it, like um, not only our ability to sort of work on our writing and our discussing economics, but also giving, it has been a great outlet. So we've had um, undergraduate economics students be able to contribute, other graduate students, other people who aren't even in academic e- economics contribute to it. So it's become a place where, you know, you can hash out your ideas um, write a really good entry on it. Um, and particularly, we love doing it in that way where you can refer to pop culture or our personal stories and things like that to make it sort of more engaging and then put it out there so that other people can read it, people can engage with it. Um, it's been such a good way to do that, um, to give people the opportunity to write about things in this sort of new blog sort of way. I think that's an amazing outlet for especially students because they don't necessarily have that. There's always the pressure to write a piece if they want to have it published in in an academic journal or even to publish a post on LinkedIn. Yeah. But having something with an economist or an economics themed website as an outlet for sharing their own ideas, whether it's essays, because we do a lot of work, students do a lot of work, and it'll be great to be able to share that amongst everybody who would like to, you know, congregate at a particular meeting point in terms of your particular website. Yeah. In fact, I wish there was a little bit more of that. I sort of encouraged friends of mine who uh, either study economics or work in economics that like, if you're working on something like maybe it's a scholarly paper or it's a policy paper, um, turn it into a blog post. Like doing that is such a good way to work on your ideas and to express your ideas, no matter what you're doing in economics, but to make it into a blog post. Yeah, I actually had a conversation with my own students recently, and I got them to do a piece of work. And I said, look, there's possibly four to five blog posts in there. Just take a bit of time and write it up and put it up on LinkedIn. And, you know, to do to do all the hard work was just that extra bit they could do in order to divide it up and have what is considered a published 
article. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it goes a long way for, for, so yeah, it's, it's fantastic to be able to have these particular outlets mm-hmm. that in the past we didn't have them before. Yeah. And that's one thing that sort of being a more junior scholar in the field is good for is, uh, so the language and the tone, I think something, something that's frustrating about economics is that it can be written so obtusely and it can be very exclusionary to people who aren't economists or people who are younger economists. Um, and then when you're writing in this popular tone, it's something that I think young people are really good at. Um, and it takes advantage of the fact that you're maybe a young millennial who's good at writing that way um, and then incorporating it with your scholarly work. Have you had any particular praise from people within who have published on your own website or who have, like myself, have come across it? And also the opposite to that, have you had people who might have looked down or because you've car- carved out a particular niche within the marketplace? I've definitely got a lot of uh, praise, particularly, I think, with the feminist economics community. I think they're really excited to see sort of popular attention coming coming to doing gender and economics work. So people have been really excited there. It's sort of, you know, admittedly, since I've started working full time, I haven't had as much time to work on the blog, but gotten such good encouragement from like these senior scholars at feminist economics who I respect so much. We're like, what you've done is great. you got to keep doing it. So I'm like hoping to use that as motivation to keep doing it while I continue to work full time. Um, and the pushback there's been, you know, there's the small amount of pushback um, about things like calling a lady economist. Um, we've gotten a little bit of that. People sort of don't like that gendering and particularly lady having this like connotation of being very demure and things like that. Um, but then we also get some pushback just because you're writing, anytime you're writing about gender, you're going to get, you're going to sort of, make people a little bit defensive um, or people are going to push back on that just because it's an uncomfortable thing for people to talk about often. But we've been pretty lucky that we haven't gotten too much of that, you know, surprisingly lucky um, that we haven't gotten too much of that. It is part of the reason why we started off doing with the pseudonyms that we use, so it's just to protect our identity a little bit in case we did get that backlash. But we've been pretty lucky to not get that much. Kate, your doctoral research, I hope you don't mind me asking you about it. The ABCs of labor market frictions, new estimates for a monopsony for early career teachers in the US and implications for caring labor. Could I ask you about this particular research, if you don't mind? Yeah, sure. I love to talk about it. Oh, fantastic. Firstly, if you could explain what monopsony is. Sure. So monopsony is classically understood as being a labor market in which there's one buyer of labor. So the way we might think about that would be like a a mining town in the mountains where it's you, there's only one mine, there's only one mine owners, and most people in that town will work for that mine. So everyone is working for the same exact company. And when that happens, the company can sort of uniformly set the wage because they don't have to compete for those workers with any other um, employer. But then it's really sort of advanced in the past 15 years or so um, to have a much sort of broader definition because what essentially monopsony is is when there's anything sort of decreasing labor mobility or decreasing the competition for workers among employers, which gives employers wage-setting power. So it's not just sort of geographic mobility issues, which is where it was classically conceived, but it could also be lack of information. It could be other sort of personal life factors, and that's kind of a lot of what I looked at. Um, personal life factors, it could be a function of the sort of work you're doing, that you're not going to have as much labor mobility between jobs. And what happens in these scenarios is since employers aren't competing for workers, they set low wages, there's deadweight loss to the economy, where if we paid workers more, employers would employ more workers, and there'd be overall benefit, except for the fact employers would lose some profit, but not so much that it would drive them out of business. In the United States, 
the teaching profession, it is in a public sector, is it? It's paid by the government? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hence, then, that, that market is a monopsony because you have the government being the buyer of labor and teachers competing for limited jobs. Yeah, exactly. And, and so the wages are set um, at some centralized level. So it's not set at a national level, but it'll be set sort of a district-wide level. So it's going to be still a sort of broad number, a huge number of jobs in a fairly sizable geographic area. That'll have only one employer and one centrally set wage. The characteristics of a typical teacher would be pretty intelligent mm-hmm. in order to get through a degree and maybe a higher diploma in education. Yeah. And if a an equivalent person with the same qualifications went into the private sector, it's expected that they would earn a higher wage. Yeah. So mm-hmm. these teachers are effectively experiencing a pay penalty. Exactly. Um, so there's some work here that I refer to in my dissertation that is done by the Economic Policy Institute here in D.C. that does a pretty good job of looking at exactly these factors. Of um, Teachers generally have master's degrees. They definitely have college degrees. They, you know, they work a fair number of hours, especially if you consider the hours they're working outside of school, correcting homework and doing things like that from home. And compared to other comparable workers with master's degrees, they earn a lot less. And there may be a possibility in the near future whereby, I, I'm not sure if it's happening with K-12 anyway, but possibly more university level, the demands for teachers may be may reduce given the availability of courses online if that ever takes off. Yeah, that could happen. Um, it could, that could happen, except there's pretty still high demand for higher education. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I don't know how that would affect. I know what's happening right now, at least in the higher education world, is we have a lot of adjunct professors. So what's happening there is that we have these really highly educated people. These are people primarily with PhDs or ABD with everything except their dis- dissertation research finished um, who are p- being paid so much less. Because right now what's happening is there's so many PhDs coming out and very few full professorships out there. Um, and so this, those people are making literally poverty wages for some of the most highly educated people in our country. And did you find in your research whether there was some degree of collective bargaining that was possible amongst these teachers? There definitely was. I mean, public sector work tends to be have much more union density coverage in the U.S. Um, than private sector work. And so there are unions in the teaching labor market, not uniformly across the board, but there are unions, and they do help. And what you find a lot in teaching, too, is that the presence of unions may not even necessarily increase the wages received by those teachers, but it increases their tenure, increases their reported job satisfaction. So giving these teachers a voice really helps them stay in those positions and the way monopsony works, too, is that there's a place for unions in monopsony. Because there's these rents in monopsony um, above and beyond sort of what would be existing in a regular competitive market, unions can actually sort of correct for those rents by dividing them with the workers. So it actually has a, it can be, there can be a positive benefit of collective bargaining under monopsony. And what do you mean by monopsony rents? Similar to monopoly rents. So it's basically just the additional deadweight loss, the additional that they, the employer will receive by underpaying workers and restricting the number of workers they're employing. I've read recently that, I'm not sure if it was the UK or the United States, but there seems to be a high turnover rate regarding teachers. They're in the job for mm-hmm. a fairly short period of time. And I don't know whether it's pressure, whether it's having to relocate to certain areas, but I'm sure it is a very high demanding job to deal with a group of young people. Yeah. 
and the pressures are there and also the the rent or the the salary it does not cover the expenses where they have to locate yeah it's interesting the teacher labor market because this is happening particularly with early career teachers in the u.s that's part of the reason i looked at early career teachers is there seems to be pretty high turnover among early career teachers and so you know there's some sort of statistic about half of all teachers leave the profession within their first five years. And that statistic might be a little bit fuzzy because that might be considering teachers who move from one teaching job to another teaching job. But teachers are sort of moving around a lot. Um, But what I found in my research is the reason they move around doesn't seem to be correlating to incremental wage changes. So I think it is the fact that it's a demanding job. It's not very well respected in the U.S. right now. They don't have voice in the workplace. There's all sorts of policy coming out that sort of is holding teachers accountable for student achievement in ways that you can't possibly hold teachers accountable because they only have students for one year and teachers only account for a part of a student's success. So there are, teachers are sort of moving around a lot in between jobs um, for factors other than like just pay factors. I've had a guest on an episode 38, Leah Bell, and she wrote a book called Angry Grad. And she actually studied to be a teacher, an elementary school teacher, and she had to work a part-time job to supplement her teaching income, but Mm -hmm. then just realized it wasn't going to work out and decided to leave the profession. Because the high levels of student debt that millennials are taking on right now aren't suited for the type of jobs that they're going into, unless you're going into something like engineering or computer science. Uh, so, you know, she had to write about this in her book, The Angry Grad. And this is exactly what you're saying in terms of your research. You've you've seen this and you've tested this. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think sort of what we'd ultimately need to really improve the teacher labor force. Um, I think teachers are so dedicated and they really want to do this work of educating people and pay them something like six figures. Um, like that's sort of the conclusion I've come to since finishing my doctoral research, that it's not even just these small incremental changes. They're not responding to those, but they need to be making as much as people like engineers, particularly if they're, because teachers provide such a great social benefit to society that they're not capturing the gains from. So have some sort of way where we can acknowledge that social benefit and represent that in their salaries, which would be something on the, you know, I think on the range of having six figure teacher salaries. Kate, I mentioned earlier on that you are an active member of the International Association for Feminist Economics. Mm-hmm. And I know that they are going to be having their next conference here in Ireland and Galway from June 24 to 26, 2016. And the theme is Transitions and Transformations in Gender Equality. Mm-hmm. Do you know what that theme would be about by any chance? I don't know exactly what they're looking for, but I'm guessing sort of it's going to be along this conversation that is happening a lot, both in policy and in scholarship, about how to put forward the sustainable development goals put out by the UN of achieving greater gender equality and what progress has been made on that front so far, um, particularly in the development context. But then I also think it's really important for developed countries to like look inward and make sure that we are also sort of transitioning and transforming into a more gender equitable society. When I say that you're an active member of this association, is this from your being a patron of it or you're actively promoted on ladyeconomist.com? Um, I'm also the chair of the communications committee for IAFI. Um, so I do some work of trying to expand their communications and, and do similar work to the work I'm sort of doing for Lady Economist about 
expanding the presence of this type of work, both in the scholarly world and also in sort of the popular culture world, um, just so people know about IAFI. Um, so IAFI is sort of a place that people look to if they want to understand how gender impacts economics. And I also do some work overseeing the blog that we just relaunched for IAFI. So we have trying to have a more active blog where we have economists who are writing about gender, have a place to also put their work out, and then engaging junior scholars through communications. Um, that's really important is to make sure that junior scholars doing this work, um, incorporating feminist thought into economics or work on gender and economics, are really getting the sort of mentorship and feeling included in this professional association, which I think IAFI does a great job of reaching out and mentoring junior scholars. I definitely wouldn't be excluded from going to this conference at all being a male. It's no, not, not at all. I would definitely go. No, not at all. Because um, there's plenty of people doing work on gender um, who are you know, themselves male. It will be, well, I mean, one thing that's great about going to the IAFI conference and even going to the IAFI sessions of other conferences, like the American Economic Association meetings every year in the U.S. in January, is that when you go to the IAFI sessions or you go to the IAFI conference, it is one of the only places in economics where you look around and it's mostly women. You see sort of people dressed more colorfully, people um, working on exciting research, people who are very warm and welcoming and open. So it's it's such an interesting space to be in economics, to be in a space where it's only like 10% men, um, but the men are fully welcomed in, and included. It's just such a different dynamic and feeling. It's really an exciting place to go. Who would your influencer be when it comes to economics? Um, I would say one of the most important scholars to my thinking, I would say there's probably two. I would initially, um, one of the people who really got me into thinking about how feminist thought can inform economic theory and change the questions we're asking is the work of Julie Nelson, who's at UMass Boston. She does a lot of really interesting work about thinking about this, about how gender really informs how we organize the world and think about the world down to looking at theory and how we develop theory and what we think are valid questions and how we judge good theory or bad theory. It's just so deep into our philosophy, looking at gender, you know, all the way through to like economic theory, which seems gender neutral, but really often what that means in practice is that it sort of has a male-centered bias or an androcentric bias. And so her work really opened my mind to thinking more expansively about the philosophy of economics and the theory of economics and the rhetoric of economics. And that was really important to me. And then in doing my own work, I'm really inspired by the work and informed by the work of Nancy Fulbright, who is Professor Emerita at UMass Amherst. And she does a lot of work on care work. And so that's one area that I'm particularly interested in is care work. And so te teaching is sort of an example of that for me. But it's these jobs where caring for another person is such an essential part of it. And so often that work is devalued, partly because it's associated with women, but also because it's just associated with these sort of feminine emotion and action of caring for another person. And these are such socially beneficial jobs. These are such, you know, these are jobs that ensure the reproduction of the next generation um, and taking care of the last generation. So these jobs are so important to the functioning of our economy, but are somehow totally devalued and ignored in a lot of economic work. Yeah, Nancy Fulbright is a fantastic economist. Again, I had her on the podcast, episode 44, and she wrote mm -hmm. an amazing book, The Invisible Heart, amongst others. Yeah. And yeah, she talked, it goes into a deep discussion on the care economy as well. And that's something that you actually touched on in your research. Yeah. And I suppose the teacher, K-12 teachers are in that care economy. Yeah. Like other uh, people who are staying at home, male or female. And as we know, again, recently, 
Lego have come out with a, a brand new Lego figure, which is a, a male, a stay-at-home dad. Mm-hmm. And he has the, the buggy and he has the, the, the trendy beard and so on, just to reflect the type of economy, I suppose, that we're living through at the moment, especially given over the last seven years where a lot of males have lost their jobs and are and their wives or partners are the breadwinners. Yeah, um, what, Even I don't like the term breadwinner, to be honest, folks. Yeah, yeah, because you're bringing home the bread or doing something like that. But um, it's true. Uh, you know, women are do have sort of more power in the economy, and so women are supporting more families. Both uh, women without male partners supporting just their, their own families that they're you know the only head of, um, and then also women in partnerships who are the higher earner. So, the, so women are do have more power in the economy, but that one of the frustrating things, especially when we're looking at care, is that it hasn't always necessarily been translated into the in their family, like in the, the family dynamic. Um, sometimes women are still doing the you know so-called second shift of being the primary caretaker at home, which sort of just puts such pressure on women workers that even though they can advance in the economy to a certain extent. It's not always reflected in family dynamics or particularly, you know, in the U.S. um, in family policy. There's not sort of policy that allows women to be able to take care of these caring responsibilities that they have. But also what I was thinking when you're talking about Nancy Fulbright um, and her her book, The Invisible Heart, is she's such a prolific writer. Um, it's really incredible. She's written so many books that it's like she writes a book every couple of years. Um, and she does a really good job of sort of, she's an inspiration in that way too, just putting out lots of really easy to understand but complex. She doesn't dumb it down doing that kind of work. So she also just inspires me in, in terms of doing that work beyond just the subject matter. Kate, you've also, in some of your research, have focused in on retirement. Mm-hmm. And your main research is on the current status of retirees and to predict the state of these type of workers. Why would you want to look at retirement? I know there's a, a diverse range in terms of age, you're looking at young millennials who are now teachers and then you're going into retirement and you're covering the whole spectrum of starting in your employment to finishing it. Why the economics of retirement? I think retirement is a... It's a pretty important economic phenomenon that we sort of don't talk about enough. I mean, people definitely talk about it and think about it, but it's not what we think about at the forefront of labor economics. But it sort of represents the idea of, like, you work your whole life and you'll be provided for. This idea that, you know, you do everything right, you work your whole life, you contribute to the economy, and that you should be able to be provided for once you decide to stop working. So I think it's sort of really an important metric to look at. Are we acknowledging our workers? Do they have dignity at both their working lives and through retirement after they've contributed so much to our economy? Um, so I do think it's really sort of an important metric of worker well-being. You've done a number of studies titled, Are U.S. Workers Ready for Retirement? And what did you find regarding that? Because my assumption would be, or my my null hypothesis would be that they're they're not they're not ready for retirement. They're not. Um, you're totally right. And what's happening, unfortunately, is they're becoming like it's, the, the problem's getting worse. Um, so under previous economic systems where we had higher rates of union density and just a different sort of retirement system where we had what's called like defined benefit uh, retirement plans, which are basically like a pension plan where you get a set amount every year after you stop working. That was a very good way to do it because you had insured stability. Um, so I think that's what's really important. If you work your whole life, once you stop working, you should have insured stability. It shouldn't be risky for you. You should be able, you've worked your whole life, you've earned 
the, you know, to have a dignified retirement. But instead, we've moved towards a riskier system um, using 401ks or other sort of investment tactics for retirement where it's you're not guaranteed how well you're going to be doing once you retire. You got to, you know, hope that you retire in an upturn or you just keep working. And so it's not guaranteed. And especially for younger people, they don't have access to defined benefit plans or less likely to work at a unionized job. Or sometimes even when they do work in a job where they're covered by a union, there could be a tiered union contract. So where the older workers have access to a traditional pension plan, but the newer ones will not. Um, and this system is just too risky. It just is, leaves too much up to the market, which we know is, you know, too up and down. After you've worked your whole life, you should be able to have a stable retirement and not have to worry about it. Um, but we're just moving away from that sort of system. I wonder, is there a difference between that question, are U.S. workers ready for retirement in terms of gender differential? Because I know Terence Odeon wrote a paper, Boys Will Be Boys, something like that, that females are more risk averse than males. And if they are putting their retirement savings into an index fund that's linked to the stock market, and as you mentioned there, the hope is that you will retire and cash in your chips effectively if you're in a boom period. Would is, I, I'm just putting it out there. I wonder if there is a, a difference in terms of how males or females would retire in terms of this wealth or poverty. Yeah, I think one important factor too, in addition to risk, that's important to acknowledge um, that because women have primary caretaking responsibilities in most families, not only if they have children, but also for elderly parents or other family members, is that they're going to have more gaps in employment and that's going to really affect how much they can save up for retirement and because women are going to earn less um, because of the gender wage gap. But if you are contributing a portion of your earnings, but you're making lower earnings, you're, you know, by definition going to be contributing less to retirement. So that's going to be part of the problem, I think, off the bat, one of the most important things. In terms of risk aversion, there is some evidence that women tend to be less, you know, risk-loving than men are in the economy, but a lot of that is also affected by gender stereotyping. Um, I saw a panel at the recent ASSA economics conference that was just in San Francisco this past January. And I wish I could remember the name of the um, person who presented it, but maybe I can look it up and send it to you or something. And she did some work on sort of gender stereotyping and financial advising um, and the type of risky investments that people go into. And so it's not only that maybe women seem to have a different attitude towards like the bucket of investments. And, you know, there's some small evidence that maybe they're a little bit more risk averse in that sense, but also they're getting advice as if they're, much more risk averse than they actually are. So women have this, people have this assumption that women are very risk averse and so they treat them like they're very risk averse um, and they're getting financial advice where they're going into much less risky investing. And so it's not only that women themselves have these feelings, it's that women are stereotyped. And so that's just reinforcing it and making it seem as though women are more risk averse than men. I know how much you love audio. So why not get a free audiobook with Economic Rockstar today? I've teamed up with audiobooks.com to bring you this amazing offer. Visit audiobooks.com forward slash rockstar to download your free audiobook now. Can I ask you a couple of quick fire questions, Kate? Sure. What book would you recommend to our listeners? Um, I think a great book to start with if you're interested in some of these things is Julie Nelson's Feminism, Objectivity and Economics. And this is something that comes from a perspective of a female in terms of economics or just generally economics? 
Um, this is sort of more about economics and how gender informs economic theory. It's pretty fascinating, but it's also really understandable. But it really can kind of, especially if you're used to thinking about economics in the very sort of mainstream, what's taught in most academic department way, is a totally different way to think about it. Um, and it's pretty eye-opening. If you could step into a DeLorean and time travel, what era would you go back to and who would you love to meet? And what would you ask them? Oh, man, that's a... I wish I had time to prepare these questions a little bit more. Um, probably right now I'm going to say maybe Joan Robinson. I would love to talk to her and figure out sort of how she thinks about economics. I know she has a really famous quote about, like, I never learned math, so I had to learn to think. And I really would love to know sort of like what inspired her to go into economics. Um, I feel kind of like a kindred spirit with her of feeling like this is really difficult work, but these are the most important questions. Um, so I need to, to do this work. And I would love to hear sort of what inspired her to go into that, this work. Your logo on the Lady Economist is a dollar bill. And it has a picture of a, a female on the front of it. But any U.S. dollar bill has a male president. And there's been debate recently as to who to remove from a bill to replace with a female to have that gender acknowledgement. Yeah. And to talk about removing Alexander Hamilton from the $10 bill, but that's quite ironic because I believe that he was somebody who believed in a feminist movement or not feminist movement. Obviously he was before that period of time, but had a more lenient approach in terms of having women in politics. Mm -hmm. Who would you remove from the bill or what would you, what's your thinking on this? Definitely Andrew Jackson. Um, Andrew Jackson was, uh, you know, not our kindest president. I've definitely also seen a lot of comparisons between, or, you know, there's been some recent comparisons between Andrew Jackson and the current Republican frontrunner, Donald Trump. Um, if people aren't familiar with Andrew Jackson, you know, he was like the Trump of his day. And I heard that the reason they were proposing Hamilton and not Jackson or someone else who's for to, you know, could be seen as less important to American history than Hamilton is just sort of a, a, a function of like when new bills are put out and when they're taken off the market that it's just like the new, the tw current 20 is more recent. So they don't want to take it off the market now. It's not even a question of like who deserves it. It's more just like a money printing question. But if it was about who deserves it, I think Andrew Jackson. It's gas though, because Andrew Jackson in the period, I think it was the late 19th century, he was actually a fierce opponent of paper money. Uh -huh. And he was given the twenty dollar bill. Yeah, yeah. And was he into? He he's in. Sorry, go on. No, no. Yeah, it just makes no sense. No, it doesn't make no sense at all. But was, would he have been in an area of slavery? And is that why, or is it more? When you say Trump, I don't mean Trump being um, uh, supporting slavery and anything like that. But was he more yeah. <laughs> of a, a tough business person or capitalist or something? That or sort of also this um, this type of like angry populist rhetoric. What personal habits do you tend to follow to help you get things done? Because you have a, I'm sure, a very busy schedule running this blog as well. What helps you get things done? Um, I pretty much now, especially since I'm working this pretty demanding job during the weekdays, I try to not be social during the weekdays, which sounds really depressing, but it's actually really great just to focus on sort of myself during the week and leave weekends for socializing is generally what I try to do. And that's sort of a way to like make sure I stay focused and I'm being healthy and those sorts of things. Um, so not socializing, which sounds antisocial, but on the weekends I do enough. So that's one thing I like to do. And then another thing that I feel like I can't overstate enough 
is the importance of having sort of communities of other people. For me, it tends to be other women to sort of bounce ideas off of and, and do brainstorming with to sort of revive you intellectually. So part of that is doing things like I started this group when I was in grad school called The Economists, which was a bunch of uh, women and non-cis male people in the department uh, just to sort of be a support group and bounce ideas off of each other. And then outside my uh, economics work, I like to have a community of people doing other sort of like gender and feminist activist work to bounce ideas off of me talking about work as an economist, but them to, as non-economists to be able to be like, that doesn't make sense to me. You're not explaining this well. Have you tried thinking about it in this completely different way? So having these sort of like communities of people to bounce ideas off of and brainstorm with. That's amazing. Does this happen online or do you meet physically? Um, a little bit online. Um, particularly there's a lot of good like different sort of like Facebook groups that you, people can start to sort of like, you know, put a post out there, put a question out there, got lots of responses really quickly, sort of similar to what message boards used to be um, earlier. And then I try to do it in person as much as I can um, and find sort of groups of women doing really exciting work. And particularly, I love I love it when I, it can be women not in economics, women doing work outside economics, but we both are very passionate about similar issues um, and just meeting and talking about the work we're doing and inspiring each other. Um, there's a concept that the writer Anne Friedman put out called shine theory, um, which is the idea that if you surround yourself by around with really impressive, inspirational women, it lifts you up to, um, it, it's not a question of women competing against each other, but surrounding yourself around with diverse and really impressive, um, ambitious uh, women really sort of helps elevate your own work. And so I think that's one thing that's been really important to me in my development as doing this work in gender and economics. Kate, at the beginning, I said that when I went to research for this podcast episode, that I went down a particular rabbit hole yeah. um, beyond the lady economist. And you've wrote a number of posts, very candid and frank posts on relationships. In one particular one, you said you talked about how Joseph Stiglitz taught you how to date. Yeah. <laughs> how is it that Joseph Stiglitz with an economic model of imperfect information and risk and insurance markets teach you about dating or dating strategy? Um, yeah. Well, I think sort of a lot of these things I write are this intersection of like how I understand the world around me through what I know about economics and how economics explains worlds, um, which is like something I can't get away from. Like the, my personal life and my life as an economist are just like so intertwined that I can't think about one thing without thinking about how it relates to the other. Um, so yeah, this is like, I, it was when I wrote this article it was just when I had started dating and after a 10 year relationship and it was just like very confusing to me. Um, I don't know, you know, other people have been there. It's really confusing when you first start dating again. And I, I look at the world through the lens of an economist. Um, and so I started thinking about like, how does economics explain these different dating phenomenon or these different life phenomenon or relationship phenomenon? And I see there's sort of like two ways you can use economics uh, is partly like looking at things like this, like how does information affect our choices? This is something that economics looks at a lot. Um, I love looking at economics of bargaining and how that affects different relationships. Um, so looking at how like economic theory as usually it's applied to the economy can also make sense for your interpersonal relationships. And then another thing that I think is interesting to look at and fun to look at is how economic circumstances also, so, you know, the fact that 
men are more likely to be earning more than their female partners. Like, how is that going to affect a relationship dynamic? And so those are economic phenomena, but how does it actually affect interpersonal dynamics? I think these are really sort of, uh, it's partly like a really sort of fun way to think about the world. Um, I think it's fun. I don't know if other people do. But also I think there's a lot to it of thinking about economics is so important to how we live our lives that there's no way we can sort of also live our personal lives and our personal relationships without the forces of economics influencing those things. You mentioned also that there's an externality that is that results from this interaction between individuals or high-risk individuals. Yeah, so yeah, I did talk about risk in that one um, based on the Stieglitz model of risk and information and the interaction between those two. What do you mean by this risk? Is is a high risk in terms of starting to a long-term relationship or even starting date, beginning dating when you don't know the person or the characteristics of that person? Yeah, other people have asked me this question. So it's good to know that this is sort of like other things that people have identified. When I say sort of like risks, um, I see that as kind of like the risk of having an expectation that something is going to play out one way. So that can mean anything. It can mean um, someone you want to date for a couple months. It can mean you're looking for a really long-term partner, but you have this idea of what you want your outcome to be. And then the risk is the probability of that actually happening. And so this is sort of, I developed this idea that like, if you have really low expectations or you sort of operate under the assumption that you don't have good information and you can't possibly try to get perfect information and you just sort of like go for it that you're not going to like you're not going to have this expectation with a really low probability of it happening and then have that sort of disappointment of that not actually being what happens have you happened to read a book called dollars and sex by marina adshade i haven't yeah it's a i think it touches on elements like that about risks and behavior and even the, the sex industry. Again, she has her own module that she teaches at British Columbia University. She decided to do this course and it attracted so many students. She said students lined up corridors in order to take this, uh, take the module. Yeah, I guess that's one thing that I think she could be getting at not knowing her work, but also some of the stuff that I write about too, is that it's like a good way to engage people in thinking about economics because thinking about dating and sex and partnership is just a much more fun thing to think about. But it's also not only how I understand my relationships through how economics interacts with my relationships, um, but also using relationships, which are better storytelling devices to explain economics. Kate, I'm looking forward to staying in touch with your website, ladyeconomist.com, reading the blog posts that are there and even catching up on all the past ones that you and others have written and i'm definitely recommending it as a as a go-to resource for anybody it doesn't necessarily have to be a feminist yeah. but anybody to to look into yeah. this it's, it's it's absolutely amazing it gives you great ideas and Thank you. you talk about a lot of you review books especially thomas piketty's mm-hmm. uh, book lately and how that uh, you have yeah. some particular insights and you look at it from certain angles and it's expansive. It expands your knowledge, to be honest, rather than looking at a one dimensional approach to analyzing or studying economics, because we know with the principles, say, for example, principles of economics is quite constrained and it doesn't reflect reality. But these we need to expand our knowledge and look into uh, people's writings and their interpretation of principles or how it relates to the economy at present. Yeah, definitely having more points of view. It improves economics. Um, it definitely has been too narrow-minded. Um, and I think there's a big call for that now to think about more points of view and more different questions to ask different approaches.
Kate, thank you so much for being so inspiring and for joining me on Economic Rockstar. I had a blast and I personally... Thank le- you so much for having me. Yeah, I had a blast and I personally learned a lot from you. Share it again with our listeners where they could find you. Um, so one of the best places to find me right now, I'm pretty active on Twitter and my Twitter handle is Lipstick Econ. Um, and so that's a good way to connect with me and then checking out Lady Economist and just keeping an eye out for any work I do through either the Feminist Economics Association or through the Center for American Progress where I work. I definitely encourage you to go to the IAFI conference in Galway if you can. Um, Sadly, I can't make it this year, but I think it's such a good conference for anyone to go to. Um, And it's such a great, also welcoming environment for economists to be in. So definitely people should check that out. Definitely. I think it was in California last year. So on my doorstep, there's no excuse really. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, you could drive there. Yeah. You can find all the links to Kate on economicrockstar.com forward slash Kate Bond, B-A-H-N. Kate, you are an economic rockstar. Thank you for being so generous with your time. Thanks a lot. It was great to talk. <laughs>